0: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lane Davis. Most Americans would likely tell you that the nation abides by a principle of separation of church and state. Yet that notion of separation does not appear in the U.S. Constitution, and how it came to hold such a prominent place in American jurisprudence is a fascinating story, and it's the subject of the book that we're discussing today, Stephen K. Green's Separating Church and State, A History, published by... Cornell University Press. Uh, it's rare to find a book that can so thoroughly analyze American religious history, legal history, constitutional history, and political history all in one volume, That yet that's exactly what Green's fascinating narrative offers. Stephen K. Green is the Fred H. Paulus Professor of Law and Affiliated Professor of History and Religious Studies at Willamette University. Before joining the faculty at Willamette, Professor Green was legal counsel for the Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He has participated in several cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and has significant legislative experience as well. He's also the author of five other books on various aspects of law, history, and religion, and dozens of academic articles, and we're very excited that Professor Green is joining us today. So, Professor, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you, Lane. Let's uh, start with just some background on the book itself. I noted uh, you know, in the introduction that you've written several other books that deal with issues of church and state. What was the motivation for writing this particular treatment of uh, the history of church-state relations now?
1: Well, actually, I was solicited to write this book. It's part of Cornell's um, series on religion and public life. And so, consequently, they uh, had asked me to uh, to do kind of this. I don't know how, how I phrase it. It's it's a, it's a um, summary, I guess you could say, of the development of church and st- of separation of church and state in uh, in the United States.
0: Well, it's very thorough for a summary. I I, I would guess that if you ask an average American where the idea of separation in church and state comes from, they would probably tell you the the Bill of Rights. Uh, But you note that scholars trace the idea back to two sources, a religious source and an Enlightenment source, and while many have sort of seen those as separate, you argue that they're in fact connected. Um, I guess tell us just a little bit about these earlier impulses towards separation and why you argue that they're more connected than maybe uh, they've been thought of as in the past. Well, certainly. Um,
1: let, let me give a little more background, though. Uh, one of the reasons that I agreed to write this book is just because this concept of separation of church and state as a jurisprudential um, you know touchstone or foundation uh, has been called into question recently by members of the Supreme Court and uh, members of the, the academia. And so this was part of the reason that Cornell uh, solicited me to write this book was just try to uh, not necessarily do a, a polemical response, but just to kind of kind of lay out exactly, you know, what, what is the status of this? Where did it come from? Um, and... Uh, possibly what it means, although I think that's one of the difficulties about the concept of separation of church and state. So anyway, what I set out, at least initially in the book, is to try to show the historical antecedents of this idea of separate spheres, uh, separate powers. And uh, you're correct. The uh, U.S. Constitution says nothing about separation of church and state. It's not in the text. Critics of uh, separation of church and state love to point that out. They used to point out that it appeared in the Constitution of the Soviet Union when that still existed, but not in the United States Constitution. Um, as a lawyer and a law professor, I think that's a relatively weak uh, argument because of many concepts. Uh, separation of powers is not listed verbatim in the Constitution. A Presidential immunity is not listed in the constitution. Uh, and so many rights that we, and uh, uh, relationships that we recognize are just not verbatim in the constitution. All that said, um, yes, I mean, it uh, did not originate with Thomas Jefferson with his famous letter in 1802 to the Danbury Baptists. Um, yet the antecedents actually go way back to the, to the middle ages where the uh, Roman Catholic church was trying to assert its independence and its influence in the Middle Ages, and consequently uh, developed this concept of separate spheres, separate uh, walled cities, in essence. One would be the uh, sacred, and the other would be the temporal, and basically saying that uh, the church, the pope, was supreme when it came to these issues dealing with what was spiritual. And as a way of kind of protecting the church, uh, that theme was certainly picked up in the Reformation, Uh, Even though uh, quite clearly we all know that uh, Calvin did not do the best job of separating church and state in Geneva, uh, was infamous for kind of going the other direction, still he and Luther uh, were very much at least theoretically supportive of this idea of getting separate spheres. And uh, separate sources of authority that existed. Okay. So it exists within kind of our Western religious, tr- Western Christian tradition. Uh, then it also comes up in the, in the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment, which is to a certain extent, of course, was in response to uh, the power of the church the doctrinalism that existed uh, in the um, 15th, 16th centuries. And so consequently, with the uh, Enlightenment, you saw many figures, uh, John Locke probably being the most prominent, who also set out to kind of identify more of a secular basis for this idea of separate spheres. And in several of his writings, but most clearly in his letter on toleration, um, he really, uh, Locke makes a very strong argument that the, uh, civil powers are just black authority they just they're just disabled from engaging in religious activities and in and, and, uh, regulating religious conduct that these are uh, again separate spheres that exist so the whole purpose of that was in the book, was just to kind of lay out that this was not some new invention, this was not some new concept that was developed by Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, whomever, that these ideas about separate spheres had been around for a long time, the uh, the radical Whigs of the middle of the 18th century, who were very much... Uh, in varying degrees opposed the, the the establishment, the Church of England, and the power that it had, uh, they were very much an advocate of separate spheres uh, between the two entities. And, and one of the more notable Whig authors, James Berg, um, actually used the term uh, a separate uh, wall of separation. Uh, and so these were ideas that um, Jefferson did not invent. He, he was a, a very worldly reader. And so he had seen these concepts, uh, out there for a long time.
0: Hmm. Now in the U S colonies prior to the revolution, you note, there were varying examples of religious establishment, uh, that all, that eventually led to various methods of disestablishment after 1776. Um, you point out Massachusetts and Virginia as being sort of two exceptional examples. Like, I wonder if you could just sort of briefly tell us uh, about what the early American situation was regarding church and state and how those methods of disestablishment uh, began.
1: Well, certainly um, at, at the cusp of the revolution, I guess we could say that, mm-hmm. of the 13 British American colonies, Um, Nine of them had some type of establishment, church establishment. Uh, In the south, it was a singular establishment, an exclusive establishment of the Church of England that would have been uh, Maryland and then south of Maryland. And then in the New England area it was what some people have called a multiple establishment. Uh, it was that each town would make the determination of what church would be the quote unquote established church and who would be the public minister and get, receive public funding and the public minister in new England performed religious duties, but also performed kind of, uh, civic duties, uh, would do the um, you know, opening prayers for the legislature and would engage in other types of kind of quasi public activities. Um, But theoretically, at least in New England, um, if a town was a majority of Baptists, they could have a Baptist establishment for that town. The reality was, is it was congregational throughout most of New England. Mm, And Baptists and Quakers had very few rights and were forced to actually pay for the, the operation of public ministers, of uh, congregationalists throughout most of this time. Uh, Then in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, and Delaware, they did not have any type of uh, colonial support for religion. No official church was established. Then the same thing in Rhode Island. So that was the scenario going into the uh, revolution. Um, A couple of influences, uh, I think, made this impulse for disestablishment quite active as it coincided, one was is that, uh, particularly in the South, uh, with the Anglican establishment, people began to, um, w- once the revolutionary fervor, revolutionary fervor uh, took hold, uh, people began to identify not just the intolerance, the political intolerance, uh, the political tyranny that was going on from Great Britain in Parliament, but also connected to the religious tyranny. And one thing that really uh, got people going was an effort by um, the leaders of the Church of England at that particular point in time to establish a a bishop in the American colonies. Uh, Hmm. There was never a bishop ever established by the Church of England in the American colonies. Uh, The Bishop of London served as the bishop. Uh, But then there was this big movement underway to try to establish a bishop in the American colonies. And dissenters, meaning Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Baptists, primarily, they got up in arms about that because they thought that what would come with the establishment, of, pardon me, with with a bishop, would be a more repressive establishment, and they would be uh, subject to be uh, uh, fewer rights than they already had. And so that was one of the things that got people up in arms about. Uh, we need to have some type of disestablishment uh, if we are going to create this new nation. Uh, mm. The other was just the influence of Wagan enlightenment authors, uh, and uh, I've, I've t- I tell my students all the time: it's almost a, a, an embarrassment of riches when we consider many of the political figures uh, at the time of the revolution how well-read they were uh, mm. in uh, history and classics and language, and uh, they, uh, our politicians today, are just a poor. Um, example of that type of knowledge. And so consequently, they had studied, uh, you know, republics, uh, ancient, uh, medieval, Renaissance republics, and they had studied why these republics had failed. And religious factionalism was one of the main reasons that they were concerned about. And so all of this kind of comes together at the right moment. Um, and so in a short 10 years, if we think between uh, 1776 when uh, the Continental Congress uh, uh, urged all of the colonies to organize as new states, some of them were already organizing as states. Uh, By this point in time, everybody realized that uh, this revolution that had been ongoing for about a year and a quarter uh, was not going to get resolved. There was not going to be peace. Just need to go ahead and declare independence. And so one of the things they said is you need to set up republics. And so immediately, uh, North Carolina, New York, which had kind of a weird multiple establishment, wrote into their early constitutions that there would be no religious establishment. Um, and certainly Pennsylvania, Delaware, and uh, New Jersey weren't about to go back down that road either. Um, within a short 10 years, as I was about to say, the uh, situation was completely reversed, whereas you had had um, nine uh, out of 13 colonies with religious establishments, by uh, the time of the writing of the Constitution, you actually had uh, 10 um, and possibly 11, depending on how you count the new state of Vermont, that had hmm. disestablished. And so the world had basically turned upside down within that very short period of time. Hmm. And uh, had de- uh, most of the states had declared at least some facet of at least religious equality. Hmm.
0: Now, I, I was really interested in your discussion of the adoption of the First Amendment. Um, you show that Congress settled on broad language for the Establishment Clause, but I, I was very interested to see that it's not clear on exactly why that was the case. Um, I, walk us through some of the difficulties that scholars have had trying to interpret uh, what what was really meant by by that that phrase in the Establishment Clause. Uh, we don't have enough time to go into all well, this debate. Sure. This is one right, of the right.
1: longest running debates that exists within uh, American constitutional history, but by far. Mm-hmm. Um, again, at the time of the writing of the First Amendment, which now we're at uh, seventeen eighty nine, right? Uh, you have. Three or four states still had religious establishments, again, depending on how you kind of look at what Vermont, Vermont had actually declared uh, disestablished. But then you still had a lot of towns that were continuing to assess people for the local ministers in violation of the Constitution. But all that aside, Um, that the question becomes is, what were they trying to achieve? Uh, And the lowest common denominator uh, maybe one of the answers that you'll see when it comes to what the First Amendment meant, right? Hmm. That yeah. at least everyone, I think, agreed that there should not be any preferential treatment for one religion over the others. But that still might allow for the multiple, a uh, uh, non-exclusive establishment, to, to possibly uh, provide for funds for multiple religions, right? But at least they all agreed, I think, that. Uh, coercion, coercion, forced assessments were unconstitutional or violated rights. I should say unconstitutional, that begs the question, violated people's rights of conscience. And that religious dissension was something that they wanted to avoid as much as possible. Uh, And then also some freedom and independence for religious entities that did not exist. I mean, how many people are, aware of this but a religious establishment goes both directions mm. uh, because uh, particularly like in, in this colony of Virginia it was the uh, House of Burghers that determined what the salaries were for ministers, determined what the rights were for the Anglican church uh, they basically ran the church um, and so the church could of England had a real benefit of being the established church in Virginia because they got the money, but they also got a lot of regulation with this. And so this was another thing that I think many of the founders were trying to avoid. Once you get beyond those principles, and then then another argument is also uh, that, uh, that probably the most minimalistic reading of the uh, religion clauses is it's a uh, effort at uh, federalism and what we mean by that is is just the, the federal government would take would have nothing to do with those religious arrangements that existed in the states and that's all it was trying to do it wasn't trying to do anything beyond just protect states rights in essence i think that's that argument is somewhat weak i think that element is in there um uh, it's implicit in there. That's what the Bill of Rights, to a certain extent, is all about, is protecting individual rights, but also protecting states' rights in some respects. Uh, but it was the, the impulse for protecting rights of conscience was so much greater than that. Um, and the bottom line was, you know, the final analysis, is there were many proposals for varying language. Most of the narrower proposals, I shouldn't say most, all of the narrower proposals uh, were not adopted. And so proposals to not establish a a national church, uh, to not establish any particular doctrines or rights, Uh, those were some of the proposals that uh, members of the first Congress uh, offered, and none of those were adopted. And in the end, probably the broadest language that anyone suggested, no law respecting an establishment of religion with respecting mean akin to. Right. So it's not just no establishment of religion, but no laws respecting things that look like an establishment of religion, that that should be something that the federal government has no authority over. Mm -hmm. Um, And. Even though it's probably overplayed, um, James Madison uh, was the primary uh, drafter, the moving force in most of the Bill of Rights, and particularly in the First Amendment. Uh, he was on the conference committee between the House and the Senate over the final language. Uh, and most people believe he's responsible for the language uh, that exists. And he clearly meant there for there to be uh, a broad concept of disestablishment.
0: Mm. And Madison was key to that. Absolutely. Uh, But of course, Thomas Jefferson is, is one of those central figures when we think about the separation of church and state in that language. Um, you, you tie the election of 1800 into Jefferson's uh, impetus for writing the, the letter that it, to the Danbury Baptists, um, what you call, um, I, I love this, the, the most famous thank you note in American history. Um, I, 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 t- tell us and explain to us that the link between that election, in which you say religious conter- concerns were really central to his writing uh, of that letter.
1: Certainly. Um, I, I'm just finishing writing my ne- next book, uh, which is about Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. They call it The Invention of American Religious Freedom. Right? One of the uh, criticisms that religious and political conservatives have often made about the First Amendment is they point out that, well, Thomas Jefferson wasn't even around, when the Constitution was written, he was the minister of France. He wasn't around when the uh, First Amendment was written. So consequently, uh, his influence is quite minimal. Uh, but most scholars recognize that the uh, Virginia disestablishment episode, which occurred in 1786, uh, uh, which James Madison was the primary movement for that, that the uh, you know, that was what was in the back of Madison's mind when he was uh, writing the First Amendment. And what was adopted in place of a uh, Patrick Henry's bill to create a religious establishment was Thomas Jefferson's bill for establishing religious freedom. He liked to use the same kind of phrasing, uh, which was by far the most far-reaching and consequential uh, law enacted at the time that provided for religious freedom, religious equality. And so even though Jefferson was not around. Uh, his influence, at least on Madison, the way they collaborated on this, I think, is quite great. Okay, um, um, trying to. Th- See how quickly I can go through all this. We have this little infamous thing that takes place in the eight in the seventeen nineties during what we call the critical era. It's called the French Revolution, and uh, I think most historians recognize the impact that that had on the the nation. Uh, most people today probably do not recognize that, um, but at least initially, uh, the most people even conservatives uh, kind of embraced the French Revolution because they thought it was an extension of the American Revolution, American values, kind of early American exceptionalism going on here, um, to France. But then once the reign of terror came about and once the uh, anti-clericalism became more rampant, then we saw a real reaction to this. Uh, And at the same time, we had this uh, growth of of deism in the United States. And so religious conservatives and federalists uh, attacked the French deism, attacked French atheism, and they identified Thomas Jefferson as being the primary kind of model of that in the United States chiefly because he'd been ministered to France for five years and had written, you know, things that were somewhat radical on the the edge, I guess you could say, when it comes to ideas about rights of conscience. And so this became a significant issue in the 1800 election when you had uh, John Adams, the Federalist, the incumbent. Uh, who was probably not that far to the right of uh, Thomas Jefferson when it came to his own personal religious beliefs. Uh, But still, he had the support of the conservative, congregationalist Presbyterians, the standing order, as we call them. And uh, the Federalist and conservative clergy attacked Jefferson mercilessly. Mm. Uh, Calling him an atheist, calling him an infidel, because of his friendship with uh, Thomas Paine, because of his embrace of the French Revolution, of uh, a kind of embrace of deism. I'm concerned about calling Thomas Jefferson a deist. I don't think he really was, but Mm. certainly he had some rational theological beliefs. So, this became one of the main issues in the 1800 election. And there's an amazing amount of literature out there uh, sermons, letters, uh, tracts uh, on both sides. Uh, so, one of the things that uh, I find refreshing about this is that uh, most of the Democratic Republicans fully embraced or embraced most of Jefferson's and Madison's ideas about separation of church and state. Uh, it wasn't just something that Madison and Jefferson held. Um, Jefferson whatever he won uh, but he, he really resented that his religious beliefs had been called into question it was actually something that uh, really almost to the end of his life he would write about or did write about uh, um, his kind of anger at his religious beliefs being made public and, he, and the false claims that were made about his religion so he uh, in 1801 He got a congratulatory letter on his ascension to the presidency, as happened quite frequently during this period of time, uh, by a group of Baptists in Connecticut. And the significance of the Baptists in Connecticut was they were a religious minority. They were the dissenters. Connecticut probably at that point had the most oppressive religious establishment uh, still in the the United States. And they were clearly second-class citizens. And so they wrote Jefferson this letter of congratulation, but then also kind of asked for his moral support in their efforts to uh, receive uh, religious equality and potentially to disestablish eventually. And so Jefferson seized on this opportunity to write a letter that he knew would be made public. He hoped it would be made public to kind of lay out what his statement is and what his beliefs were about uh, this idea of separation of church and state. This very concise letter. Um, it was uh, relatively well-received uh, uh, when it was publicized. Um, but to a certain extent, it was actually forgotten by most people until the Supreme Court rediscovered it in, uh, in, in 1879. Um, and interestingly enough, as best can be told, and someone can correct me, Uh, If uh, if who's listening to this, if they know otherwise, and please do, is it's the only time we have a record of Thomas Jefferson ever using the phrase separation of church and state in his writings verbatim. He he certainly implied it many times. He uses other kind of formulations. The only time he ever talked about a wall or any kind of close metaphor to a wall of separation of church and state. Uh, Madison actually talks about it a, a fair amount in subsequent correspondence and letters. Uh, he uses the phrase a lot more closely than uh, Jefferson does. But what's ironic is this uh, this metaphor that Jefferson is so famous for uh, coining. Again, he he only used it once in his career, so far as we know.
0: Huh. It is a, a really fascinating story. Um, I, I found the chapter that you wrote on the 19th century to be especially uh, thought-provoking and sort of the the paradox that you point out of everyone sort of claiming a fealty to the separation of church and state while, in, in essence, uh, de facto Protestantism sort of becoming a a uh, an established church in a way. Um, wh- one of the instances that you talked about in the book, I was especially interested to learn about was the Sunday mail delivery controversy. I was sort of aware of it, but I, I didn't realize how important it really was. Could you describe that uh, and what that is for our listeners and, and, and sort of uh, how that exemplifies the argument that, that you're making in the book? Certainly. Um, There's several other authors
1: who've written about this more extensively than I have, but uh, it's, it is probably an episode that most people are not aware of. Um, in uh, th- I, I guess it was one of the earliest uh, mail statutes, one of the earliest laws enacted by Congress uh, back in the uh, late 1790s, I think it was, maybe early 1800s, was that um, post offices had to be open whenever they received mail, to deliver mail. And it's a little bit different today than what it was back then. Back then, of course, mail was not constantly being available, but mm-hmm. you'd have a stagecoach come into a town or a wagon would come into the town from some other town, and they, it would contain mail. And so that's when the post office would open. It would open only when there is mail. And so it required it be open on any day of the week, Hmm. Uh, which included Sunday. Uh, Well, most uh, states, even though they had disestablished, had Sabbath laws that prohibited any type of uh, recreation or work uh, on Sundays in order to try to encourage people to, of course, attend church. And so uh, what we see arising in the early part of the 19th century, a couple of things. One is what's called the Second Great Awakening. It's the rise of modern uh, American evangelicalism, camp meetings, revivals, etc. Uh, evangelicalism becomes the dominant f- uh, force probably in American society uh, during the mid part of the 19th century. uh, Most churches become evangelical, right? Okay. Uh, So you have an increase in religiosity that takes place in the early part of the 19th century. And in conjunction with that, you have the rise of the moral reform movement, Lyman Beecher and many others who, uh, notwithstanding the rise of evangelicalism, are concerned about moral decay. In mm-hmm. the expanding frontier. And so consequently, they developed these various uh, more reformed societies, a temperance society, uh, and then a Sabbath uh, enforcement society, among many others, American Bible Society, the Tract Society, Sunday School Society, uh, all of those. Right. So um, during the uh, War of 1812, there is a uproar, slight uproar, about the delivery of mail on Sundays. Uh, the mail department kind of brushes that aside rather quickly and basically says, hey, we're in the middle of a war. We need to have make sure there's this communication going on back and forth. So go away. Don't bother us with mm-hmm. this. But as this more reform movement gains momentum in the 1820s, then you see uh, a concerted push to end this mail delivery on Sunday. And so it's really the first episode of kind of, uh, interestingly, of a grassroots uh, petition drive going on in American history. And the uh, moral reformers uh, uh, institute this massive petition drive to Congress to try to get Congress to repeal the Sunday mail law. Um, That also coincides at the same time that you have kind of a, whatever, a, a rise or a new rise. Uh, not of American deism, but of American free thought, American skepticism, right? Uh, Fanny Bra- Fanny Wright, uh, the Owens, uh,
0: mm,
1: right, and, uh, and they're aligned with uh, workingmen's movements to try to increase labor rights, et cetera, right? And so, uh, and it also occurs with kind of Jacksonian democracy coming to fruition, and so. You find actually a, a looser coalition on the opposite side who oppose this in uh, the, the repeal of the Sunday mail law, and they institute they they get their own petition drive up, and this goes to Congress. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, there's not a hearing, but the the mail committees of both the House and the Senate reject the petitions to uh, repeal the law. And there are two reports, both written by the same person, interestingly enough, Richard Johnson, who ends up becoming uh, the uh, vice president under Van Buren. He was in the House for a while, then he was in the Senate for a while, so he ends up writing both of these reports. And it's just a a, a rousing embrace of Jeffersonian separation of church and state and says, uh, no, if we actually would enforce basically kind of Sunday attendance, or at least change the law to be consistent with the prevailing religious practices, that that would be like an establishment of religion. And this is something that Congress doesn't have the authority to do so. Um, so it's a kind of an interesting uh, kind of reminder that this impulse still was out there in the 19th century. Hmm. Um, evangelicals, though, um certainly did not want to have one side of separation of church and state uh, go away. And that was the regulation of religion. So consequently they embraced ideas, some limited ideas of separation of church and state, but they saw it kind of in a formalistic way uh, that uh, they basically did not want any preference for any other religion because they were all in competition for each other among each other. Uh, and they did not want any regulation from the government when it came to religion. And so Evangelicals embraced separation, uh, but a very kind of narrow view of separation, one that did not conflict with kind of a general Protestant ethos that had kind of taken over American culture in the middle of the 19th century. Um, And then they also embraced it uh, kind of as a stopgap or defensive mechanism uh, when you had the rise of uh, Catholic immigration. Uh, and the question became whether prayer and Bible reading would be omitted from public schools. Um, evangelicals said, well, no, it's non-sectarian. It's not related to any one sect. And so it should be permissible, but oh, by the way, though, separation of church and state is going to keep us from funding the Catholic schools. Oh, no. And so they certainly embraced it, uh, for, for those reasons also, hmm.
0: um, so one more question to kind of uh c- cover a lot of ground here but but hopefully lead us up to sort of where we find ourselves today. Um there were two cases uh in the 20th century that you you sort of called the apex of of uh, the debates over church and state separation. That's the Everson and McCollum case. Uh, just, just briefly tell us about those cases, and then how has how that sort of led into where we find ourselves today? What what is the what is the state of the separation of church and state in our in our current society? Be, be as thorough or brief as you would like with sure. those very okay. broad questions.
1: Well, certainly by, by the by the end of the nineteenth century, let me just back up a little bit. Um, sure. The idea however broadly or narrowly you construed it a separation of church and state. It, it, it could mean multiple things in some respects that was extremely well established. Uh, even some Catholic uh, bishops basically said, yeah, well, we, we agree with some concepts, some, some ideas of separation of church and state too. Um, so it was there, but once again, uh, it, it, it meant different things to different people. And, um, at um, whatever, the the way that the Bill of Rights were, was written and the way it was interpreted rather early on by the United States Supreme Court is that the Bill of Rights, the, the first eight amendments to the Constitution, um, they only restricted the authority and the power of the federal government, not of the states. Um that it was intended only to limit the federal government in essence. So consequently, uh, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, whatever, did not apply to states or to locales, state officials or locales. Uh, but getting into the 1930s, really 1925 is the first case, but really gains momentum in the 1930s. You see the Supreme court, court, excuse me, U.S. Supreme Court, being sympathetic to extending the Bill of Rights to also prohibit constitutional violations by state and local officials. This is called incorporation. And what they use is they use the due process liberty provision of the 14th Amendment, because the 14th Amendment clearly applies to states in ways that the first eight amendments do not apply to states. And so through the magic of incorporation, they did a kind of a a right-by-right approach that really continued actually into 2000s with with the heller case with the second amendment um, that uh, would find that these rights were protected by virtue of the liberty provision of the 14th amendment against states Uh, in 1947 the supreme court did it for the establishment clause for the first time And so the case of Everson versus Board of Education is important for two significant reasons. One it's the first kind of what we call the first modern church-state case by the United States Supreme Court, uh, where the Supreme Court actually says, yes, states, you are covered by the Establishment Clause as well as the Free Exercise Clause. You could not violate that, right? And so that was highly significant they did that. But then at the same time, the justices all... Nine of them unanimously embraced separation of church and state as being the jurisprudential guideline. It would be kind of the standard that we would apply when it came to church-state issues. Uh, interestingly enough, on the facts, the court actually split 5-4, a uh, question about whether you could have bus reimbursements for children to attend Catholic schools The five justice majority said, actually, you could because it was a a health safety measure. It really wasn't advancing religion in any way. The four dissenters said, oh, no, we can't have any kind of aid going for religious schools. But regardless of that dispute over the facts, uh, the justices were unanimous that uh, separation church and state will be the touchstone. Uh, The next year uh, in McCollum versus Board of Education, you had the first uh, kind of religion public education case that the Supreme Court considered. It wasn't prayer and Bible reading. It was something we called release time, which was religious instruction outside. Individuals would come into the public schools during the school day, and the schools would turn over classrooms to these uh, ministers to conduct a class in religious instruction. And the Supreme Court struck that down uh, eight to one. And, again, strongly reaffirmed this principle of separation of church and state as as the guideline when we're talking about church-state matters. And and the court more or less did it again, not with such strong terms, but did it again in the prayer and Bible reading cases in 1962 and 1963. Um, And so... Separation of church and state became kind of, again, part of the American ethos, and and most people certainly professed fealty to separation of church and state as being this guiding principle, Um, really kind of coinciding with the uh, rise of the religious right. In the late uh, 1970s, uh, the Reagan Revolution in 1980, you started seeing more pushback uh, in, by uh, in popular areas, but also in some legal sur- circles about uh, has separation of church and state gone too far? Um, is it is, you know anti-religious? And so these arguments are being made more and more by religious conservatives uh, in uh, 1986. Really the first time in a dissenting opinion, uh, then Justice Rehnquist, in a dissenting opinion, came out and just uh, scathing opinion, basically said separation of church and state is a false concept. Um, and uh, that we should uh, – he, he called it bad history uh, has been used to basically affirm this idea of separation of church and state. That kind of threw down the gauntlet. And with uh, more and more conservative justices appointed to the Supreme Court over time, uh, more and more conservative scholars coming out, uh, I mean, when it comes down to it, uh, this is an easy thing to – easy concept to beat up on. Why? Because it's a status quo and because it's something that you you can poke holes in quite readily. And so consequently, uh, we see this momentum that starts building uh, primarily in the 1980s and goes through the 1990s. And it becomes, once again, kind of a case by case situation where the court is increasingly sympathetic to various forms of public funding of religious education, initially just kind of peripheral things, like auxiliary things. But then over time, uh, basically allows for uh, more meaningful funding. Uh, In a case that I was co-counsel in, the Cleveland uh, voucher case in 2002, Supreme Court for the first time basically allowed for basically full cash reimbursements, effectively, uh, for tuition, for sending children to religious schools. And as this has happened, usually not in majority opinions, but in concurring opinions, you'll see some of the justices start to basically pick apart separation of church and state. Uh, Justice Thomas has done this. Justice Gorsuch has done this. Uh, And so it's it's under fire uh, as a Mm -hmm. concept.
0: Hmm. Uh, recognize that it's, uh, it's, it's always a bit of a faux pas to ask historians to predict the future. But if, if you could, if, if you could see where this, uh, doctrine is perhaps, uh, headed in, in terms of our, our legal system in the future, what, what would you predict?
1: Well, I'll stick my neck out. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, in, in a oral arguments in one of the cases today, uh, one of the cases this term, th- there were uh, actually five church state cases this term. Um, one of the argument, in one of the cases dealing with whether Boston could prohibit the flying of a Christian flag uh, outside Boston City Hall, uh, when they basically created what we call an open public forum for everybody else to fly their flag. Uh, I mean, it was it was good. It was was going to be an easy decision. The Supreme Court clearly had a little problem with it. But at least in the oral arguments, Justice Gorsuch in one of his kind of caustic, uh, Questions of the Boston city attorney. He says well, something about, oh, this so called separation of church and state, um, which I just find this kind of interesting because, you know, it's the Supreme Court that's themselves who adopted the phrase and embraced the phrase and used it over and over again. It's like no one was holding them down with a foot on their neck saying, you have to adopt separation of church and state. They willingly adopted this. But anyway, there's been a lot of hostility and with, with kind of the um, I, I, I can say this without sounding political. I think with kind of the ultra conservative uh, majority on the court now, and, and the Chief Justice Roberts is now kind of a moderate conservative. Um, I have would not be surprised at all. And there are two cases. One is dealing with another funding case out of Maine um, about uh, whether the state of Maine could refuse to pay tuition for children to attend private religious schools. Uh, and then a case out of Washington State dealing with whether a football coach uh, can go in the football field uh, at the end of the game and pray in front of the crowd while the audience is still there and have football players pray with him. Uh, I think in both those cases, we're going to find the Supreme Court side on the religion side as opposed to the secular side. If you want to call it that, they're going to basically say you can do that, doesn't violate separation church and state. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if we're going to find uh, at least a four-judge plurality and possibly a majority that will say it was a bad, whatever, bad metaphor, it was a bad concept. And the reason I'm I'm kind of feeling pessimistic about this is we already have gotten this kind of window that that's possibly going to happen with abortion rights, with Roe versus Wade and Casey, uh, with the released opinion by Justice Alito. Uh, I was doing a continuing legal education for the Oregon State Bar last month, and I basically said, uh, the first year I kind of got into this, first year I I went to work in in Washington, D.C. in 1992, we had the same situation presented to us. And I said, it's kind of like the famous Yogi Berra quote, you know, it's deja vu all over again. And in 1992, you had conservatives argue two things in two cases. One was Casey argue we should throw Roe versus Wade out. And the Supreme Court refused to do that in an opinion written in part by Justice Kennedy. And then you had the graduation prayer case, Lee versus Wiseman in 1992. And they said the same thing throw out the lemon test, throw out separation of church and state. And again, the court declined to do that in an opinion by Justice Kennedy. And so this has been done before, uh, attempted before. But in briefs uh, on uh, for both cases, the litigants have argued vehemently to get rid of Roe versus Wade. And then in the religion cases, uh, two briefs I joined on in both those cases I just mentioned, uh, they argued we need to get rid of separation of church and state.
0: Hmm. Well, it will be interesting to see uh, for sure. Well, Professor Green, it has been a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for your your insight and analysis, not only on the history, but on on some of the current issues uh, on separation and church and in state. If uh, if there are listeners that want to learn more about your work, what are what are the best places for them to do that? I don't do social media. So <laughs> I, I don't
1: I don't do Facebook, so you can't do it on that. You'd, you'd, you'd have to check the. Uh, the, the webpage of Willamette University School of Law. And there's my CV and they're on there with the other
0: books that I've written. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, thanks so much again for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for uh, joining us on New Books in History. Uh, make sure to subscribe to our channel to keep track of uh, all of the great new scholarship in the field. And we will see you again soon. In the meantime, happy reading.